0: Hello, everyone. Before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr. Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But The main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast. And that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal potcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr Neil Buttery.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 205, Do Not Let Me Perish. As you know, we have a growing band of sisters and brothers who have become members of the History of England and in return for their kind generosity in supporting the podcast, I produce a series of members-only podcasts. Last week, it was all about four groups of visitors to England around the early 16th century and their impressions of England and the English. Some were positive, some mm, were less so. I was particularly fond of the Italian, who said, The English are, both men and women of all ages, handsome and well-proportioned. I was less keen when he went on to say, I have understood from persons acquainted with those countries that the Scotch are much handsomer, which is clearly twaddle. I was also less keen on the Spaniard, who said, One must necessarily conclude either that the English are the most discreet lovers in the world, or that they are incapable of love. Harsh, we are as discreet, is all. Anyway, come and join in by going to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and paying your piffling fee. This week there's a guest episode about who wrote all those Shakespeare plays controversy. Next week it's about the development of English national consciousness in the Middle Ages. Fun tones. So, back to the knitting. Someone got in touch, by the way, and said they detected a change in tone. Am I sounding miserable or something? I am so sorry, if so, what a disgrace. And by the way, now that I have dispatched the Anglo-Saxons a second time, we're returning to three episodes in four weeks, which I hope does not simply make you groan and reach for the bottle. A couple of episodes ago, we were celebrating with Henry Tudor the marriage of his son and heir, Arthur, in November 1501. Despite the fact that Henry's a gnarly kind of character, you can but feel happy for the lad. The main officiating person at the wedding, by the way, was the Archbishop of Canterbury, of course, William Wareham. Some of you, I can see, are looking confused, and if so, I am impressed. You might be looking confused because you thought the Archbishop of Canterbury was one Cardinal John Morton. Sadly, Cardinal John had died, croaked David, the previous year in 1500, aged somewhere around 80 years old. Henry would have certainly missed Morton's loyal and intelligent guiding hand and support, but at his age it can hardly have been unexpected. Much more painful and unexpected would have been the death of Henry and Elizabeth's youngest son, Edmund Tudor, who also died in 1500 at Greenwich Palace at the tender age of 18 months. Still, in terms of the political angle, they had the apple of their eye, Arthur, and a spare in his younger brother Henry. After some debate, Arthur and his bride Catherine had travelled to Ludlow, Edward IV had made the same decision about his son, Edward. Hard though it might be to send your son away, both had been the Prince of Wales, and the Council of Wales was based in Ludlow, on the Welsh borders. Both had therefore been sent to learn the trade of kingship there. And who said being a king was all about parties, opening fates and talking to plants? In April 1502, Henry and Elizabeth were at the Palace of Greenwich, east of London, on the river when a messenger arrived and demanded to see the king. It was late. The king and queen had retired, so household councillors took the letter and opened it to make sure of its importance. What they read made them send immediately for the king's confessor, and as early in the morning as they dared, the confessor knocked on the king's door, told everyone else to leave, and told the king about the letter. He started with a Latin quote. If we receive good things from the hand of God... Shall we not also receive bad? He went on to say that Prince Arthur had been struggling with an illness for months and two days before had given up the struggle and was now dead. A record seems to have survived of this terrible day for Henry and Elizabeth. I've put the description in full on the website because it shows a perfectly normal father and mother, no dark prince here and no sign of a dysfunctional relationship just for the convenience of it. Henry called immediately for the Queen and she comforted him with words along the line that they'd been lucky to have been blessed with a son and two princesses and they were still young and eventually her kindness calmed him. But when Elizabeth returned to her apartments, she broke down, the king was sent for and they comforted each other. But life goes on. That same year in December saw the culmination of all the negotiations that had gone on between James IV and England once James had dumped Perkin. In December... James IV signed the Treaty of Perpetual Peace with England. It was something of a hoot, given that someone had put the word France into the text rather than England by mistake, which is a very telling error. The poor bloke writing the treaty out, maybe late at night, must have thought, Nah, Perpetual Peace with England? Nah, that's got to be a mistake. Can't be. Must have made a mistake, they must mean France. Anyway, by this treaty, Henry's 13-year-old daughter Margaret was betrothed to James a marriage took place by proxy at Richmond Palace in January 1503 and by the end of 1503, she, Margaret, was herself in Scotland. This is the marriage that would lead eventually to Scotland's attempt to rule England from 1603. As it happens, while Henry and Elizabeth wept for their son, Elizabeth was probably already pregnant again and in January 1503, she went into confinement at the Tower of London with her mother-in-law. Lucky thing. The confinement was timed a month before the birth, but after only two weeks, Elizabeth went into labour on the 2nd of February. She gave birth to a daughter, but it soon became clear that something was badly wrong. Soon, she had a raging fever. Desperate commands, for medical specialists came left, right and centre from the tower. Messengers hurried to and fro. Physicians gathered and consulted. None of it worked, unsurprisingly, given the quality of medical advice. On the 11th of February nine months after her son Elizabeth died, and her daughter died not long afterwards. Well, the reports of Henry's reaction would seem to kick into the long grass any suggestion that his marriage was anything other than real and important to him. He seems to have fallen, temporarily at least, to the proverbial pieces. Henry retreated to Sheen, south-west of London. Sheen had been a popular royal palace since Edward I had taken over the manor there, in 1497 the place had burned down, which Henry probably rather appreciated, since it gave him an excuse to build his own place. The replacement palace was called Richmond, after his title as Earl of Richmond, of course. Only the park survives now. There is a picture of the palace, though, on the website before it was mullered. Slightly odd, maybe a bit overenthusiastic in the onion-bulb department, but hey, if you twisted my arm, I'd have forced myself to move in. Anyway, I'm supposed to be describing the depth of Henry's grief, not talking about onions. Once at Richmond, Henry, quote, Privily departed to a solitary place to pass his sorrows, and would no man should resort to him. And so Henry mourned the death of his wife. And Henry had one more death to deal with in 1503. In June, it was the turn of his and his mother's man of affairs, Reginald Bray. Of all his counsellors, Bray and Morton had been the ones he trusted most. Now both were gone. The flight of Suffolk to the court of the Holy Roman Emperor, the deaths of his son and heir, wife and some of his closest confidants, all of this put a lot of pressure on Henry and it began to show in a sort of heightened paranoia. I'm not saying he goes potty, but there's a certain hardening of attitudes. Actually, it can be seen rather before 1502. In 1499, after Suffolk's first excursion, he'd ordered that all the names be taken of anyone who'd been involved in treason cases in any way whatsoever, and he used that list to really start ramping up the use of bonds for good behaviour. It was a sort of hit list, a mailing list of extortion. The King took a series of bonds in the North and East Anglia particularly. In Berwick, then, in the north, the prominent Darcy family found itself the proud possessors of a £4,000 bond for the safety of Berwick. Now, that's a massive amount of money, probably unpayable. Certainly, they'd have to change their supermarket brand. It's not that Henry necessarily distrusted Darcy, actually. I suppose this particular bond, in a way, was just a rather paranoid and extreme performance management technique. Thomas Darcy made a great deal of money through his role as captain of Berwick, so fine. If he messed up, though or worse, use his position against the king's interest, Henry would have more on him than dismissal from his post. He could ruin him and his family. Remember to suggest the approach next time you talk to your boss. Many of the bonds in East Anglia were designed to close the net around Suffolk, though in this it was all rather self-defeating and led to Suffolk's second flight with his brother Richard in August 1501. Suffolk had gone to Maximilian and the Emperor had happily agreed to give him financial support, anything to point the knife at Henry. Suffolk, in return, had started to plan his return and his rebellion. Now, it appears that Henry knew of his plans to a distressing degree. There's a record of a conversation between Suffolk and one of Henry's spies, actually. Though Suffolk appears to have known as well and seems to have been able to use the conversation to his own end. By neither confirming nor denying Henry's suspicions, he probably succeeded in heightening Henry's paranoia. One potential source of support was no longer available to Suffolk. This was Margaret of York, Edward IV's sister, of course, who had supported Perkin's cause so fiercely. Margaret had died in fifteen O three. Nonetheless, Suffolk seems to have had support in England. Before he left, he had apparently hosted a supper of notables. There was William Courtney, the young heir to the Earl of Devon, the Marquis of Dorset, the Earl of Essex. These were high-profile men who could indeed cause Henry genuine trouble. But of course, need I say it, Henry knew all about them and knew all about this supper. Suffolk had friends in the Pale of Calais and Calais seemed to provide a conduit to England for Suffolk, particularly through a man called James Tyrrell. You might remember the name from the Richard III debate. Here is the man accused of confessing to the killing of the princes in the tower. Richard Fox, Charles daubeny they'd already tried on the king's behalf to persuade Tyrrell to leave Calais and come and have a little chat. Tyrrell had stayed right where he was, thank you very much for asking. After Arthur's death, though, Henry acted. In what follows, it's pretty clear that Henry's idea of truth, light and justice wouldn't go down well at the Hague. It's also pretty clear there were very few successful rulers of the time that would meet that august body's favour anyway. Maybe Henry was paranoid, and at the time his actions can't have helped the political atmosphere with a political class already under pressure from courts, bonds, attainders. Equally, I suspect his fellow rulers would have been nodding approvingly. Anyway, this is what happens. In 1502, Thomas Lovell appeared in Calais. Lovell was one of Henry's intimates of his privy chamber and council, and he spoke to Tyrrell. He told him not to be a wuss, don't be a big girl's blouse. It was only a chat, they wanted, nothing to worry about. He'd be back in Calais before he could say return ticket. Terrell, who quite probably had done nothing worse than provide an innocent supper for Suffolk, finally agreed to come back. Maybe this would get these guys off his backside. This level looked like an honest sort of cove, and if the king promised, well, fine, what's the worst that can happen? To be thrown into the tower, interrogated, and crushed with pen forte dure, and then executed, appears to be the answer to that particular musing. Tyrrell and two of his Calais associates were thrown into the tower. One of them turned out to be one of Henry's spies, in fact. Tyrrell was interrogated, quite possibly tortured, questioned directly by the king. And it was during this interrogation that Tyrrell's story about the princes appeared, none of which saved him, and he was executed in January 1504. Other arrests followed in a continuous stream. In March 1502, one of Henry's chamber attendants was arrested and a bunch of suspects rounded up at Porchester Castle on the south coast. William Courtney, one of those who had been at supper with Suffolk, was arrested in April 1502, this despite his wife being Queen Elizabeth's sister. Henry was prepared to spend money on spies and to spend money to bribe foreign potentates, including the Holy Roman Emperor. Henry was relentless, ruthless, he was cold and patient. He was able to wait, able to play the long game. Contemporaries recognised these qualities. The Milanese ambassador described the way Henry had pursued Warbeck thus. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The same tray will emerge in his negotiations with the Spanish and in his dealings with poor old Catherine of Aragon. For now, Suffolk realised these moves by Henry, put him firmly in the mire, and he wrote... I have been warned in no uncertain terms that King Henry is seeking in all places, and through all kinds of people that he can buy off with gold and silver, to destroy me. Quite probably this earned Suffolk the post of Professor of the Bleed Obvious, but he was of course right. And to be brutal, Henry had by his actions essentially cooked Suffolk's goose, always assuming that Suffolk had a goose of any significance to begin with. From here on, poor old Suffolk cuts a rather feeble figure of increasing desperation and poverty, hanging around at foreign courts, asking folks for the equivalent of a quid. He begins to feel a bit like that greatest of Scottish poets, McTeagle.
0: Lend us a couple of bob till Thursday. In fact,
1: things were so bad that while Suffolk went to the Low Countries, his brother Richard was held as a hostage against payment of very considerable debts. But beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch, but just because he had at best an outside chance doesn't mean for a moment that Henry would not pursue him to the very end. Simnel, Warbeck, the death of Arthur and Edmund, just one chance left for dynastic peace with Prince Henry, the king would do anything now to protect his fledgling dynasty from enemies within and without. Prince Henry also saw the changes resulting from the death of his brother and mother, Unsurprisingly, his mother's death hit him hard. He would talk of it in later years, describing the news as the, quote, hateful intelligence. By 1504, Henry was no longer Duke of York. He was now Prince of Wales, officially replacing Arthur in the hot seat. And he began to accompany his father on his summer progress, the court on tour, as it were, a habit Henry would keep for the rest of his life. Henry was not going to make the same mistake with Prince Henry as he'd done with Arthur probably to the prince's great irritation and regret. Henry would not have a separate establishment away in the marches as Arthur had done. People apparently die out there like flies. Nor indeed did he allow the prince a separate establishment as he'd done as Duke of York at Eltham. Nope, Henry would be kept close. By 1504, Henry was 14 and already folks were noticing that he was a strapping lad with legs like tree trunks. A lad designed for the joust and the tilt yard. Henry Senior was having none of that. Henry was not allowed to joust. People died when they jousted. Henry was only allowed to run at rings, i.e. to catch a little hoop at the end of his lance. Now, I can see it as a handy skill. Good training for popping a lance through the eye holes of somebody's visor, but romantic, exciting and sexy, it ain't. The prince chafed. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. For Catherine, things seemed okay, actually, in the immediate aftermath of Arthur's death, once she'd got over that, of course. The king appeared solicitous and supportive. Sure enough, there was a difficult issue with Isabel and Ferdinand. The dowry hadn't been paid. Only half of it had. The biggest problem with this, actually, was that it gave the green light to two blokes who followed the rule, if it moves, negotiate. If it had been bad before, it was horrendous now. And in the end, Catherine would suffer for it, though not without playing her part in the messing, it has to be said. But anyway, initially... Catherine was given her own place on the Strand in London, Durham House, and there she could manage the household that Henry still thought was way too big and spend money, which she did, liberally. Henry seemed to be prepared to let her have her way and indulge her, even giving her gifts, including one of a 100 quid. Ominously, this, though, was marked in the account book in his own hand as, quote, "...for this time only." as the clash were to explain a few centuries later in their one and only good track. The options for Catherine were essentially twofold. Should she stay or should she go? As far as Ferdinand was concerned, if she came back home, the dowry came back home with her. As far as Henry was concerned, he would negotiated a good price with that dowry. Catherine had been married as promised, and so he wasn't inclined to see it go. Whether Catherine went with it or not, and could he have the other half, please? He also had possession of Catherine herself, which was a good negotiating chip. And anyway, the marriage had been consummated, had it not. So, wherever Catherine went, he was still owed his dowry. Time to pony up Ferdy, baby. The consummation question, which would be of such importance later, was just caught in this negotiating war. The Spanish said, oh, no, it was never consummated. Give me the money back. The English said, oh, of course it was consummated. Give us the money. No one was able to say that they'd seen Arthur and Catherine swing from the chandeliers at Ludlow, so the debate was devoid of any evidence and composed entirely of assertion, as it has been ever since. From, poor Catherine, she's such a saint and trooper, she could never have lied. She ought to know, to, oh, she's a conniving political animal, is that Cathy? She'd do whatever her dad told her to do, what a big fipper. Essentially, you pays your money and takes your choice on this one. And actually, the person for whom I feel most sympathy is that arch-villain Julius II, a man unused to being receipt of sympathy, I imagine. Because he gets blown around in the situation like a shuttlecock, never quite sure how not to annoy somebody. Because the first conclusion, after much hair-pulling and name-calling by Henry and Ferdinand, is that Catherine should get married to Henry. Wait, what's that? No, not the old Henry, the young Henry. Though... Since you mention it, there was a rumour that old Henry considered marrying his son's widow. After all, he's only in his late forties, there's still plenty of bounce in his bungee. News of this idea reached Isabella's ears and she went ballistic. But realistically, although Henry was indeed hitting the dating sites and putting himself out there, there is no evidence he seriously considered such an idea. And anyway, unlike Richard III, he wasn't required to issue a public denial. No, it was young Henry who was to marry, but for this dispensation was required, which is why I mentioned Pope Julius II. Dispensation from the Pope was required since the marriage had been consummated, apparently, and was therefore legal, and as Leviticus tells us, And if a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing, he hath uncovered his brother's nakedness, they shall be childless. Seems clear enough. And anyway, Arthur had needed papal clearance for the consanguinity thing anyway. So, after the requisite papal dithering, an initial instruction which came out saying, It's all fine for Catherine to marry Henry after this marriage to his brother, which was consummated, by the way. Isabel and Ferdinand then hit the launch button on thermonuclear war, and Julius scurried away and inserted the word probably. I meant probably. The marriage had probably been consummated. The Pope had Frenchmen with big boots and sharp knives trampling all over Italy. The Pope wanted everyone else to love him and knew nothing of consummation in this case. Although, despite his vows, he personally knew plenty about consummation. In fact, Julius II was on the World Consummation Team at the Consummation Olympics for 25 consecutive times. But from there on in, things get harder for Catherine until they get really quite bad for a 19-year-old stuck in a foreign country at the mercy of a rather hard-bitten father-in-law. She doesn't really help her own cause, it has to be said. She supports as head of her household one Donna Elvira, who had the subtlety and finesse of a 50-ton lorry, hated King Ferdinand and carried out a political wrestling match with the Spanish ambassador de Puebla. Catherine seems herself to have despised the astute and well-connected Puebla as both a converted Jew and NQOCD. She doesn't seem to have managed to learn English and she can't help but try to get involved and play politics, which is understandable. Everyone wants some control in their lives, but given that she wouldn't listen to the man who knew what he was doing, Puebla, it's not surprising, she was rubbish at it. But in the main, she's a pawn, and Henry shows no mercy, he uses her as a pawn. Meanwhile, Ferdinand doesn't cover himself in glory as a father either. He persistently withheld the final payment of the dowry against the background of poor Catherine's pleas. Pay the man, Daddy, pay the nasty man. Isabella of Castile died in 1504 and that also rather reduced Ferdinand and Catherine's bargaining power because Catherine became rather less of a catch on the international marriage market. Ferdinand tried to retain control of Castile as well as Aragon even though he was king only of Aragon and failed, rather conclusively actually. Castile and Aragon were very different places. Castile was the homeland of the Reconquista, of war against the infidel, of nobility, honour, class structure... Aragon was about commerce and the freedom of the Cortes. So, anyway, now Catherine was a child of Aragon, a relatively small nation in the scheme of things. Henry applied pressure to Daddy, removing Catherine from the rather splendid Durham house. At the request of Catherine herself, actually, which was but one example of Catherine's ineptitude at playing politics, since it gave Henry the absolute permission to keep her poor, get rid of her Spanish household. Catherine was even more alone now. Catherine's plotting continued to move smoothly through the ineptitude spectrum. So next up, she got herself involved in a stratagem organised by Donna Elvera to get Henry together with the new king of Castile. Let me explain. The heir to the Castilian throne was Joanna, eldest daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, Catherine's big sis. Joanna was married to Philip, Duke of Burgundy, the son of Maximilian the homely Roman Emperor. Joanna and Philip had an unhealthy relationship as far as we can see through the accretions of the normal anti-female bias of history. It looks as though Joanna on one hand was neurotically besotted with Philip and was probably clinically depressed and therefore very vulnerable. And on the other hand, that Philip was an utter, well, not a great guy and shamelessly exploited Joanna and the situation. For all intents and purposes, he was King of Castile. So Catherine got involved in trying to get Philip and Joanna to come and meet Henry. From her rather inane point of view, she just wanted them to get together to help her out of her own hole. The reality was a plot by Donna Elvira to set Philip and Henry against Ferdinand. All of this unwound. Catherine was forced to come clean with Henry. Some years later, Donna Elvira's part in this was uncovered by Catherine. There was a massive row and Elvira found the royal boot applied to her backside, landing her in the Netherlands. Anyway, in the midst of all of this kerfuffle in 1505, Henry ramped the pressure up even more. So, in June 1505, at the Palace of Richmond, a small group gathered around the Prince of Wales. Young Henry, with his big thighs, stepped forward and made an announcement. Now he was attaining the years of puberty, he intoned, he had decided not to proceed with the marriage to Catherine. I protest vehemently against it and am opposed to it. He also swore that he had acted, quote, "'Neither by force, fraud or entreaty, but willingly and freely, in no way compelled.'" At which point it would have been good to see his nose, since this was clearly the most enormous porcupine. This was his father speaking. No one bothered to tell Catherine, by the way, of this announcement. And by this stage, Catherine was pawning jewellery to buy herself clothes. Quite grand clothes, Quite grand jewels, this isn't a trip to social services, but nonetheless, it's uncomfortable for the lass. Into this tangled, painful mess comes a rather remarkable visit to England by the very same Philip and Joanna in 1506. It was not by design, but from Henry's point of view, by an enormous stroke of good luck. There they were, sailing down the Channel, when Philip and Joanna were caught in a storm and they were stranded on the English coast. Henry pounced. Both of them were most royally entertained. There were presents, tournaments, jousts, hoolies galore. But it was quite clear. They were prisoners, hostages, and they would have to pay their price to exit. Philip, as it happened, had acquired his own diplomatic pawn, none other than Suffolk. Henry and Philip bargained, and while Henry must have rubbed his hands with glee when he heard who'd been shipwrecked on his coast, by the time Philip and Joanna left, he was quite probably dribbling. It is worth noting that Philip had already gained plenty from his possession of Suffolk. He had already proved his value as a pawn, and indeed proved just exactly how worried and paranoid Henry was by this stage. Over the course of 1505, Henry had paid Philip £138,000 worth of loans. Loans, in this case, were quite clearly of the permanent variety, such as when a child asks her father, Dad, can I have £20? I'll pay you back in the morning. Promise. It's the kind of loan you note sadly in your fat book of unpaid loans to your children and consign back to the dusty bottom drawer where it lives. One pounds That's close to 18 months of Henry's total ordinary revenue. To this day, historians scratch their heads and wonder where all that money came from. It may be the source of Francis Bacon's confident assertion that when he died... Henry left his son £2 million. There's this feeling that Henry must have hoarded a massive amount somewhere. In fact, it's pretty clear that Henry left no such thing, that all that the scraping and beating and extorting allowed him to do was not much more than live within his means and put a nest egg by for his son. Until English kings dumped Henry the IV's legacy of living of their own, that is the best any English king could hope for. Just keep your nose clean, avoid foreign wars, don't shop at waitros and it was just about OK. Anyway, this was now payback time. Philip signed an agreement with Henry, which was so one-sided it was to be called the Malice Intercursus, the evil treaty by the Dutch, because it removed any duties from English textiles. Wild! That is a big price for an exit ticket. In addition, Henry agreed to hand Suffolk over to Henry. And then even more, Henry was to marry Margaret, the dowager-duchess of Savoy, to which Margaret, incidentally, snorted and said, not on your nelly, and that was that. True enough, Philip got something from this too, given that England was now firmly in the Habsburg orbit, aligned against France. With the payment of the exit fee, Philip was free to go, and he did. By September that very same year, 1506, he was dead leaving as his heir the six-year-old Charles, who would become the most extraordinarily powerful Holy Roman Emperor, but would start just with Castile. Actually, this was good for Ferdinand. There really was no one else available while Charles was a nipper, and hated or loathed, the Castilian nobility were finally forced to accept Ferdinand as regent. On a personal note, it wasn't great news for either Joanna or Catherine, Philip had made sure that he arrived at Westminster well before his wife Joanna to talk to Henry and when Joanna arrived Philip made darn sure that her arrival was very low key by the back door entrance. But Henry did greet her and indeed it suggested he was a bit bowled over and of course Catherine was desperately keen for her big sister to arrive so they could catch up with the gossip but Philip had no intention of allowing any of that to happen. Joanna, the rightful Queen of Castile, as she's known, was sent away from Westminster to Dover for the entire duration of the visit so that she could have no influence on the discussions. Catherine did not see her then and would not see her ever again. When Philip died, Joanna's father Ferdinand was really no better than her husband had been. He forced her to support his claim for the Regency, though she defiantly refused to sign anything. Much good that did her. Ferdinand declared that she was mad, dismissed her attendants, and surrounded her with people acceptable only to him. She lived a long time, actually. Her son Charles took the same approach and you have to think that by now she probably was genuinely mentally ill, confined to a convent as she was. She lived to 1555 to the grand old age of 75 and never regained her liberty. Not a happy story, not one I've researched in any depth, I have to say, but tempting so to do, one day maybe. All of this left Catherine high and dry. She had tried to persuade, to plot, to scheme, and nothing had improved her position against the cold, hard realities of life and the cold, hard realities of the parents involved in Henry and Ferdinand. No dowry had been paid. Catherine was unmarried and stranded at the English court in relative poverty and powerlessness. She wrote to her father, Do not let me perish, otherwise I am afraid I might do something which neither the King of England nor your Highness will be able to prevent. Poor Catherine wanted release, any kind of release from this cul-de-sac. Send for me and let me come back to Spain, she wrote to her father, that I may conclude my few remaining days in serving God. That would be the greatest good I could have in this world. All jolly tragic, although given the letter was written when she was twenty-three, Last few remaining days shows a fine sense of melodrama, but true enough, she was in something of a jam. We're going to leave Catherine there, and indeed Henry. Next time we can return to the domestic stuff and introduce you to Empson Dud, Richard Empson and Edmund Dudley. That will be next week, as we move back to three and four episodes. Thanks to all of you who become members, and also thanks to those of you who have and continue to donate. As you can imagine, it's more than a little important to me, so I really appreciate it. For those of you who are not yet members, check out thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Until next week then, folks, and the coming off of wheels. Good luck, and have a great week.